Well, good morning. Come on in and have a seat as I'm just fixing my notes here. Okay. It's so good having you here today. It is warm outside, I tell you. I just got back from Florida, and I thought it was warm down there, but it, uh, it's not like here. <laughs> I got to actually go back down there because it was not as humid. But uh, so it's good uh, being back with you and fellowshipping with you uh, this morning. Just got a couple of announcements. Uh, we are beginning a new series um, of sermons um, from the book of Revelation. It's the entitled of the message is our messages are the message of Jesus Christ to his church. We're going to be looking at the letters um, of Christ to his church. And Pastor Tim will be kicking us off this morning as he talks about the triumph of the Lamb. So looking forward to this series, how Christ talked to his ancient church and how he is talking to us today. VBS if you don't know, is kicking off, uh, and uh, woo, we're looking forward to it. It's been a little while since we've had VBS with uh, this pandemic, and now we are back, and we're looking forward to it. So um, if you saw the email yesterday, you saw that there was a registration is live. If you didn't get the email, uh, just go to our website, thechapelnj.org, scroll down to the bottom. There is a link there, and there's also a link um, in the Life together section and that's another great section for you to kind of look at on the website just tells you about some of the things that are happening here at the church and we're hopefully adding more things to it now regarding VBS I would encourage you to share it with your friends share it with your neighbors uh, I'd encourage you to bring out as many people as you possibly can to this so that we can minister grace uh, to our community um, for those of you that are volunteering next Sunday June 5th Lord willing there is a pre VBS meeting um, right after church service, um, so come. And uh, I was talking to Christina this morning. She'll be at a, the table um, after service. She was there before service. She'll be back out there after service as well if you have any questions. If you have not signed up to volunteer yet, they are still looking for guides. Guides are one of the easiest jobs that you can do. You just take children from one section to another section. But it is so important, and being able to shuffle them around and be able to move them from one section to another is so important, and it's building relationships, so we'd encourage you to be there. Community Blend, you saw that as well. Uh, there are a number of things that are going on, regular meetings and upcoming events. You saw that in my email. We'd encourage you to be looking at that as well. And I think that's it. Oh, and then I did not put this in my email. I should have. Um, Sunday in the Psalms will be back, so we would love it if you would be there. This evening we're going to be picking up a very long psalm. Uh, I should, probably shouldn't tell you that because you probably won't come out. But um, Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 reminds us that we have to remember our history. Uh, we have this tendency to forget. And I guess it's really good counsel for us today to remind ourselves of what God has done, who he is, and what he has done for us. It's so vitally important. So the psalmist is reviewing the history of the nation of Israel because they attended to lack confidence in God. They rebelled against God. They didn't trust God. And that's what our tendency is today. I just want to read the first several verses as before we pray this morning. Psalm 78, it says this, Give ear, 
O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach it to their children that the next generation may know them children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they may set their hope in God not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that's really our counsel today that we should remember what God has done number one and we should teach it to the next generation number two set your hope in God don't forget what he's done and keep his commandments. That should be our call today. Would you pray with me? So Lord, uh, this morning as we have this opportunity to um, pray, uh, we thank you so much for your kind grace. Lord, I, I, I pray uh, for the number of requests that are here, uh, probably far too many uh, for me to go through this morning. Uh, and there are probably tons more requests that are not even known. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you be a God who works in us and through us. I pray that you would remind us of who you are and remind us of what you've done. And help us to set our hope upon you, Lord. Lord, I pray for um, this person, Josh, who has been struggling with a rare disease for 20 years and now has had a recent brain hemorrhage, Father. And I don't know where his faith is, um, but Father, physically he is struggling, so we pray right now your hand of mercy would be upon him. I pray for those that are praying for their family members who don't know Christ, Lord, that, that you will open eyes and open hearts and draw people to faith. We continue to pray um, for... Gary Hoyt, Father, I think he has something coming up on the 8th, Father, a bone marrow uh, work on the 8th. And we continue to pray for Diana Kelly, Father. And, and the list goes on and on and on. There's so much suffering, so much pain. But Father, I pray that you remind us that you're a God who can do even immensely more than we can ask or imagine. So, Lord, I pray today that you would work in us. I pray that you would work through us. I pray for each ministry that is here, that we would speak truth. I pray for my brother this morning, uh, Pastor Tim. As he opens a really significant book, Lord, I pray that you would speak through him by the power of your spirit and help him to reflect you and help us to hear, help us to set our hope upon you and help us to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One last thing I forgot. Um, for those of you men, um, excited about this, there's a men's breakfast coming up on June 18th. Mark your calendars for it. You'll get more information as we move forward. Blessing. Fear the night. We won't fear the battle. We won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us. You will lead the way. We have found a refuge only you can save. Sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. 
Shout for joy. Shout for joy for the Son of God is the saving one. He's the saving one. We shout for joy. See what love has done. He has come for. Yes, he has. You have saved us. Jesus, you have saved us. Be glorified. Lord, we praise you. You've saved us. Sing Jesus. Jesus, you have saved us. Be glorified. We glorify you this morning. scripture to you. This is from what Pastor Tim will be speaking on uh, this morning. This is Revelation 1, 4 to 5. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth.
song this morning. It's in the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, it's the hope of the church he is building nothing can stop it it's a city that's shining a light in the darkness nothing can stop it though Christ was dead though Christ was dead, now surely he's risen, yeah, he's coming back again, and Christ will reign in triumph His word is the answer for all generations. It will never be tainted. It will never be broken. This is our confession. This is our conviction. We believe what is written. We believe what you've spoken. Oh, Christ. 
close as kind of our, our anthem, our banner over today.
more I really want to say other than what that just said we crown you the king of kings you're the lord of life we hail you as our matchless king through all eternity lord we give you the praise the glory this morning we thank you for saving us protecting us redeeming us lord protecting us from death and destruction by the blood of christ that is over my life and those who believe that Jesus did come, Jesus did die for our sins, and that he did rise again. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of life. We thank you this morning for the book of Revelation. We look forward to hearing Pastor Tim speak on it. We ask your blessing on him now. We thank you for this time of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's good to be in God's house. I'm largely here. Um, dealing with some uh, allergy issues. So if I need to uh, take a break for a minute, just I, so it's not a distraction if and when it happens, I just thought I want to get that off my chest up front, okay? I want you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1. So it's easy to find because it's the last book in your Bible, okay? I ask you to turn there with us and we're going to read eight verses this morning. And then uh, walk through them together. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the title of this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of or about Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. All that is written in it because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God forever and ever. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with clouds 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, or who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. The title of my sermon this morning is The Triumph of the Lamb. It actually is the title of my favorite commentary on the book of Revelation. The focus of this book is on the victory that is found ultimately in the person of Christ. Admittedly, uh, the book of Revelation is probably to many of us one of the strangest books in the Bible. It is one of the most misunderstood and most often abused portions of Scripture. It is a strange book because it is just loaded with heavy imagery, imagery that is sometimes bizarre and at best strange to us. You have locusts with human faces and tails that sting. You have beasts with seven heads and a woman clothed with the sun. You have a lot of intrigue, a lot of interest, and perhaps for many, a lot of confusion. Uh, the style of the book is apocalyptic, that it is, it is uh, images that are meant to expose, to unveil, to clarify, or to emphasize. Okay, so as you read through it, it's meant to put you back on your heels a little bit. It's meant to make you say, wow, or that's amazing, or I don't understand that. It has that kind of impact. Heavy, loud, loaded symbols. I was trying to think of movies that probably would help you to understand how this literature, this style of writing works. And probably if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, if you've watched that, there are certainly times as you're watching that you're saying, wow, that is grotesque or that is like hard to grasp. And, but you even though you are struggling with what it depicts, you know that what it depicts is like this or like that. It's the images are that clear and striking and stark and loaded. And so the same thing is true as you read through the book of Revelation. There's also parts of Revelation that will remind you of a movie like the Chronicles of Narnia, where you find images that are profoundly encouraging that drive people to their knees full of hope and, 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 and relive with enthusiasm. So you find that kind of loud and heavy laden imagery. The purpose of it is to disclose truth in vivid fashion. It is to, um, to provoke, to inspire, to encourage. Okay, so as you read through it, you, you need to understand how the book is written and the style of literature that it is. And verse 3 tells us that largely this is a book of prophecy. So blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's a book that is prophetic, but it is also a book that is letters. It's written to churches, particularly to seven churches in an area called Asia Minor, Okay, which is modern day Turkey. So if you have a map in the back of your Bible and you open that up and you look to the far end of the Mediterranean Sea to the eastern side of it, and you look to the north, you find modern day Turkey 
and you know, to the west is Greece, but to the east you find this, this whole region where the early church really got its roots and founds it, its foundation. One of the leaders in that series of churches in the area of Asia Minor was John the Disciple of Christ. So as we, as we look at the literature of apocalyptic, secondly, we see the author is John, the writer of the book of John, one of the beloved disciples of Christ, who is in now in his 90s. He is the last living personal witness to the resurrected Savior Jesus Christ. So he has held this, this amazing position of influence in the church and is the last living person who saw the resurrected Christ. And it is him that God chooses to share this vision that is the book of Revelation with. So he's responsible for establishing some of, and certainly according to church history, giving leadership to the churches in the area of Asia Minor. At this time, as he writes the book, John is exiled, verse 9 tells us, to an island called Patmos. All right, and Patmos is essentially a small, thin island about 65 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. The purpose of that island was to isolate and silence. So as you look at this aged man sitting in confinement, perhaps even subject to menial labor and task in his last days, God characteristically comes to him in this season of struggle where he is isolated for the purpose of being silenced and he gets a word from God. He gets a powerful picture ultimately of the exalted Christ because this book is called the revelation of Christ. It is the unveiling of the glory of Christ from the time of the cross to the time of his second coming. And it is meant to inspire hope in John, his servant. And one of the lessons I think we learn as we, as we look at this at an introductory level is you can do all the right things, which John apparently had been doing and still end up in difficult circumstances in your life. And for people that live a good life or a life that seeks to honor God fully, there are times that you will find that the result or the response to that work will be struggle and suffering. And John is in the midst of one of those seasons. The audience of the letter is obviously the seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. And one of the questions that certainly comes to mind as you read through this is, why the seven? And one of the things you'll find as you read through the book of Revelation is that the number seven takes on this importance of a fullness or a fulfillment. Okay? And so when John writes under the direction of God, these letters, it's written to seven churches. It is to literal churches that we can find historically. In fact, if you trace the way that they're listed in the book of Revelation, it literally covers what would have been the postal route in that Roman province. So this letter is written and dispersed to the churches for a distinct and unique purpose. But that church of seven ultimately and obviously becomes representative of the whole. So over the next seven to eight weeks, we're going to be preaching through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation to look at those letters to the church of Jesus Christ. 
in their specific and unique circumstances. Okay? So the audience is the seven churches. The situation is that they are in a season of unprecedented suffering. If you're familiar with the history of the Roman Empire in the first century, you know that there was a character named Nero, very uh, influential in the time of the Apostle Paul. He was the emperor of Rome. He was brutal towards the church, but his brutality is only surpassed by the gentleman that comes shortly after him, whose name is Domitian. Domitian was an emperor who revived the imperial cult. That is the idea that Caesar is curious. Caesar is Lord. Okay? And that, that self-exaltation was attracted to this man. He would call the people of Rome to, to annually visit the temple to affirm in a pledge their affection and their loyalty to Caesar in this, or to, to the Caesar, in this case, his name is Domitian. The problem for Christians and for the early church in that setting is that they could only pledge ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when the Roman emperor called himself Lord and God, that was a direct and deep offense to the truth of biblical Christianity and ultimately to the person of Christ. And so as Christians, they could not make that pledge. And for that reason, they were seen as agitators, as dangerous and unpredictable. Even though there is nothing in the first century of the early church that would give you any indication that the church had any such intentions of overthrowing the Roman government. No, no indications whatsoever in, in uh, ancient history. But Domitian launches a vicious and bloody assault that will cause all assaults previous to pale in comparison. Domitian was responsible for taking Christians live and impaling them on stakes, dousing them in oil, and lighting them on fire. He was responsible for having horses tied on each limb of a Christian leader and then having their body torn asunder. Responsible at times almost in a gracious fashion, casting people in the Colosseum to lions. And I think one of the more striking and horrifying ways to terrify the church and to try to defeat their allegiance to Christ for some of the apostles, holes drilled in the head and molten lead poured in to kill. All of that, and I, as, I, as I type that, that, just putting that on paper, uh, drew tears from my eyes. When you think of what the early church was enduring and how desperately they needed a word from God, a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a reminder of who Jesus Christ truly is. That's the setting in which this letter comes to the church among some of the most horrific seasons of persecution in church history. Can I say this? Can I say that in seasons of struggle, we are very quick. The, the most modest form of struggle. We are very quick to react and say that this is bad. 
And we usually pray immediately for God to remove the trouble rather than to purify and change and transform us. And the early church stands as a model of people who stood firm, who stood holding to their convictions about morality, about what was right and about what was wrong. They were firm in their convictions, unwavering in spite of the threat of persecution that fell against them, even for many to the loss of their lives. It's very interesting to note that in that season, the church of Jesus Christ exploded in growth. One writer in the ancient world, one of the early church fathers said this, he said, the blood of the saints was the seed of the church. That the suffering of the church amplified the message of Christ in a way that nothing else could. So to you this morning, church, to us, I don't know what the struggle is that you're going through, but God aims to use it to multiply your witness for his glory. Don't resent, don't flee, don't run, don't compromise for self-preservation because when you do, you sacrifice the opportunity of witness to the glory of Christ who is so deserving of all that we have. It's interesting as you read through the book of Acts, and I think it's in chapter 19 where the writer of Acts says this. Luke says, as the people in Thessalonica saw the apostles coming into town, they noted these are the men who have turned the world upside down, who have so deeply impacted the ancient world they could, that they could no longer be ignored because their witness stood in such stark contrast. Their pure lives stood in such stark contrast to the culture in which they lived that it began to bring against them pressure to change, to conform, to be silent. Does that sound familiar? As you watch the world in which we live slide quickly away from biblical norms, from biblical morality, and you find that as you hold on to biblical truth and biblical morality, that you begin to face pressure, indignation, you're dismissed and marginalized. And the question for us is, will we receive the moment? Will we receive the pressure and respond to it as people who have deep trust in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and want him to be manifested through their lives, come what may? That's the message of this book. It's to encourage a faith-filled perseverance because we have a clear picture of the triumphant Christ. May God give us that kind of a picture. The purpose of the book is stated in verse one. It is the revelation of Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse two says, John is testifying to everything that he saw. That is to the word of God and the testimony, the message about Jesus. So this letter 
is written to expose Christ fully to the church for a purpose. The purpose of this book is to show the suffering servants of God what must soon take place. Now, here's what I want you to see real quick. Many people approach the book of Revelation as a data dump. Okay, meaning it's a lot of details and facts. And, and we got to know what every little thing means. Right? In the conservative church, we have tended to focus on wondering, what are those locusts? Okay? Or we've obsessed over timing and timetables, which Jesus clearly forbids us from doing. He says, no one knows the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. So if anybody ever steps on the platform in a church and says, Christ is about to come, based on their analysis and they're predicting the time, they are ruled out as false teachers by the words of Christ. This book is not written to give us when Christ is coming. It's written to tell us that he is coming. And that's the hope of the church. It's not bound up in a date. It's bound up in a person. And the encouragement to the early church was Jesus revealed in all of his glory in the heavenlies and soon on earth. I remember when I was a kid. I remember a series of movies. Uh, it was a trilogy, The Thief in the Night. Some of you got to be, you probably have to be, I think, over 50 to know what I'm talking about. Okay. And then in the 90s, you had the series, the Left Behind series, right? And can I tell you what I think the purpose of those movies was? Well, I, and I testified to this based on its impact on me. Okay. It was to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> okay. Revelation was taken. It was put in the theater and cinema, and the purpose was, right? I, look, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how you could read the introduction to the book of Revelation and the rest of the book of Revelation and come to the conclusion that we should put this in cinematic glory and just scare people to death. And then they'll come to Jesus. It's not the purpose of the book. Okay, it misses. Now, I'm going to say something as a caveat. I have close friends who came to true saving faith in Christ at a theater in Amber, Pennsylvania, where they showed those movies and then presented the gospel. I don't think the movie saved people. I do think it scared them. Okay? But this guy, Harry Bristow, he would preach the gospel open the movie theater, show movies for free. These were the movies he showed. So understand where I'm coming from. God is gracious. He uses unfortunate imbeciles. And I stand here as living proof of that, okay? That God can use anybody to do his work. And, and that, the sincere efforts and the preaching of the gospel in that setting works. Okay, but if you think that's the main purpose of the book, you've missed it. This is a letter, a personal letter containing prophecy to seven churches who were literally being torn apart 
for their faith in Christ and for being loyal to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this letter is written to encourage them in their season of suffering that everything works out at the end. And what the book does is it paints a powerful picture of Christ that says this. He is not only a promise maker. He is someone who is capable of keeping those promises. And that becomes so critical because when you go through long extended seasons of trouble, when you're being criticized for your faith, young person, you need to know that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who has your back, who defeated the grave. And one day is coming back. Okay, this book says to the early church, Christ is powerful. He is faithful. And he is a triumphant promise keeper. And I and you and the early church desperately needed to hear that message. So what I'm saying by all of that is this. Here's the interruption. I don't know if Don was with me on that or not back there, but I think he was. Okay, the purpose of this book is not information. The purpose of this book is motivation. Okay, motivation to be faithful. Motivation to be true. Motivation to be Faithful to the commitments that I've made because I trust in a coming king who one day will make all things new. Yes. And all of the injustices that have assaulted the church will be settled on the day of his coming. So three simple thoughts. A promised blessing, a God-centered hope, and a promised return. First, the promised blessing, verse 3. And don't miss this. It's the only book in the Bible that offers this type of promise about itself. Blessed is the one. And that word blessed is the same word that's used in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Those that have a certain mindset enjoy the favor of God. And that's the idea here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Not those that analyze it and try to figure out what every little thing means. Because once you've broken it that down that far, you have destroyed apocalyptic literature in terms of its purpose and impact. It's meant to hit you with loud images, not to tear them apart. What's this? What's this? What's this? In the modern day army, what's this? Is this this? Is this this? Stop. Okay. You're ruining the book. You're ruining its purpose. It was meant to change you. To, in the midst of struggling, fill you with hope by revealing Christ in the most powerful imagery imaginable. And as you read it in the midst of your struggle, it is a book that aims to encourage you deeply at the center of your heart. And so God gives a blessing. Blessed are those who read it, who hear it, and who take it to heart everything written in it because the time is near this is meant to comfort to to stabilize to buttress and support people that are struggling so first we see the promised 
blessing. Can I encourage you to do something maybe over the next couple of weeks? If you've never read through the book of Revelation or you start and you just say, oh, it makes me nervous. Okay. Can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to read through it and look for the promises that God makes to his people? Can I encourage you to read through it through all the struggles and difficulties and things that cause you to cringe a little bit and see Christ ultimately exalted, victorious, and just over all things? And let the blessing of this book become part of your experience in Christ. Verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, in modern-day Turkey, grace and peace to you. And those two words simply kind of wrap up the idea of favor flowing from God to people who desperately know that it is needed. Okay, that's the idea here. Grace and peace to you. And listen to what it says. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits. The idea there literally is the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. And so all of a sudden you found yourself wrapped up into the context of this deep theology of a Trinitarian God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's a beauty in this text because the, the first idea, the first thought is that there is a God, the Father, who is eternally present. He was he is, and he is coming. And that is to say, he is aware of your present circumstance. He knows your past, and he is in your future. It's already there. He is controlling it. He is governing it. He is using it for your good and ultimately for his glory. Exodus 3.14 captures this, who was and is and is to come, in the very simple statement, God says to Moses, I am. Eternally existing, uncreated, I am. And then he says, from the Holy Spirit. And this is fascinating. He, 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 he says, and from the, the sevenfold spirit, this, this fullness of God manifested in the person of the Holy Spirit. And what you have to do to understand this is to go back to the book of Zechariah. And by the way, in order to properly interpret the book of Revelation, you need to... Steep yourself in, saturate yourself in books like the book of Daniel, books like the book of Ezekiel, books like the book of, Zachari or of uh, Zechariah. You need, to, you need to kind of be biblically literate so that when you see specific imagery rising, you know that there is a context for that. You've heard that before, okay? Because otherwise you start making things mean things that they don't mean, Okay? So you have to be, work at being biblically literate so that the blessing of this book, and there's an assumption on John's part, these people know their Bible. And as he writes to them, they're able to connect Old Testament images to New Testament truth about Christ. Okay, because the Bible ultimately is telling one story, and that's about the person of Christ. So when you go to Zechariah 4, you find that the, the lamps are reminders of the Spirit's presence in the dwelling place of God. And it's interesting that in that setting in Zechariah 4, 
the writer says, as he gets the vision, he's like, what are these seven lamps? And God says, these are, this is my sevenfold spirit. And then he says to him, remember, Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, human, but by the power of my spirit, says the Lord. So the indication is here that God the Father is present eternal, that God the Spirit is present all-powerful, and then this beautiful transition in verse 5 to the person of Christ. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is, watch how he's listed, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can you imagine if you're stewing under the rule of Domitian, who's killing your friends. And you get this word that ultimate truth is that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That, and that's stated in other places in the Bible. He is king of kings. Don't panic about political things. Stand for truth, but don't panic. There is a king of kings. There is a ruler of the kings of the earth. Their authority is limited and subject to his final authority. And that's meant to bring comfort to us as we gaze upon the person of Christ. He is described as faithful. That is the idea. He is a reliable leader. He is the firstborn from the dead. And that is to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a first and guarantees ours. Okay? So that if in the midst of the persecution, the worst thing happens... Remember, he's the firstborn from the dead. That his resurrection guarantees and forecast and prophesies the future resurrection of all those who believe and trust in Christ. So death cannot separate. And then the text puts an emphasis on the fact that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then that he is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Folks, here's what the church needed to remember. They were in the midst of their struggle. They were deeply loved by Christ. And the proof of that was that he shed his blood to bring them into his family. So the, the deepest assurance of God's love is not found in a proclamation. It's found in an act. It's found in Christ crucified, and it is in that direction that John here begins to move. He freed us by his blood. He brought us into his family, took us out of slavery, gave us hope in a future. And there may be between that, our current existence, our current struggle or circumstance, and the future hope, there may be a season of struggle, but it is all rectified at the return of Christ. It is all made right. It's fascinating that in verse 6 he says, He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Now I want you to think real quick when you hear that. He has made us a kingdom, a kingdom and priest. Meaning we're part of this new country. We have a new citizenship is really the idea. And we will serve as priest. Think about that. What is John saying to the church? He's telling them of their future role that will not be annihilated by the persecutions of the emperor. He's telling them of a God-given purpose in their salvation. 
that cannot be des destroyed, that cannot be thwarted by the worst attack that comes against them. Isn't that beautiful? He says, you have a future. And folks, I think there's a sense in which we share in that based on Ephesians 1, right? That we are a, a, a God's, in God's kingdom. We, we, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're already partaking of that. We're already, each believer is a priest, meaning having direct access to God where we can serve and benefit those around us. Those are beautiful truths. But they have a future outworking as well that impacts our, per, our, our present existence. Okay, so to the struggling church, he says, there is this God-centered hope. He saves you from judgment and for mission. There is a glorious purpose. And then verse 6, he ends with this explosion. Okay, he just, John just steps back and he says, to him, to that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. To him be all glory and honor. All of my allegiance pledged in that direction. Folks, where is John? He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been relegated to silence. He's been put away from his people, 65 miles away in the ancient world, on a desert island, deserted, perhaps in difficult labor. We don't know. But from there, he gets this glorious, beautiful vision. And when he gets the vision, he just explodes. To him, to God, be glory and power forever and ever. Even when I don't see that power being unleashed to deliver me from my present struggle. John doesn't say when he gets back to the church in Ephesus, which he never does. He dies on this island. Do not imagine that John is thinking that I'm going to get back to that church and then I'm going to say, all glory to God. John is in a prison facing certain death. He's in his 90s as he writes this letter. And what's the confession? The consistent confession. All glory and praise be to God. All glory and praise be to God. And I think as John writes that for this early church, oh, how that must have hit them. All favor from God. So we see the promised blessing. We see the God-centered hope that it is, it is secured by an eternal God who has all the capabilities required to be good for his promises. And then he drifts into the purpose of the book, really the focal point of the book in verse 7, which is the promised return. And I, I love how this is set apart because it's, it's set in a poetic language. Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is the, the, the promise of the second coming of Jesus. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. And listen to this. Even those who pierced him. Though, and that is to say they rejected him and put him to death. Put him on a cross. Despised. Rejected. And all people of the earth will mourn because of him. And the response of John is, oh, may it be. Amen. Let it be that the exalted Christ who was dead, is alive, is coming again. Look, he is coming with the clouds. So let me just quick unpack this. This is hope for a suffering church that is centered on the doctrine of the return of Christ. Okay? So this is truth that is 
critical to our daily life and to our survival as the church of Christ. And I love the way John says it. John says, look, he's coming. One day he will manifest himself in a, in a beauty and in a glory that will be stunning for those that love him and know him. And a rebuke to those who have rejected him. The text says he is coming with clouds. And this is beautiful because if you go back to the book of Exodus and find God the Father coming down on Mount Sinai. Here's what the text says. He comes not on clouds. Okay, so don't, don't confuse. This is like couching on clouds. No, this is coming with clouds. And clouds in the Bible are always representative in the realm of God's presence. They are always representative of the glorious Shekinah presence of God. Of the, of the magnificence of God revealed in clouds. So here when John writes, he says that he, the Lord Jesus, is coming with clouds in the same fashion that God came. Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and he comes with clouds. The idea is with glory, with all of, regaled in all of the beauty that is God himself. It's meant to be an overwhelming picture that when it is imagined, it is beautiful. It demonstrates authority and sovereignty and it brings hope to the struggling church, God's glorious presence. You remember how it was when Jesus was taken up in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after the resurrection with the clouds. And what does the writer say? As you have seen him go, or the angel comes and says to the disciples, as you've seen him go with the clouds, so he will come again with clouds. And here the writer John makes the connection that when Christ comes, it is with glory. And, and the idea that starts to kind of arise here when it says every eye will see him, it means that this return is visible, unavoidable, irresistible. You can't stop it. That when God begins to move from heaven towards earth, what he's going to do cannot be thwarted. Oh man, I long for that day. I long for that day. When opposition is silenced and the glory of God is so beautifully revealed. I believe it's why Jesus in the book of Matthew 24 and 25, when he talks about his return, he says it will be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. That is to say it is irresistible, it is unavoidable, and it is visible. So that what Christ is promising here is not some theoretical sense of his presence when the church is behaving well. Okay, and that's the way the liberal church, by the way, talks about the second coming of Christ. That Christ returns every time God's people do something good. That's not what's described here. What's described here is a visible return. Like he went, so he shall return. And it is in great power and glory that overwhelms. Every eye sees some will mourn. And that's a fascinating statement. The idea there is literally to be broken with regret at the sight of him. This is an oh no moment. I made the wrong choice moment. To reject Christ leads to mourning, sorrow, and sadness. So the writer of scripture says, if today you hear his voice, 
And today you hear him calling. Don't harden your heart. Don't stop up your ears. Give him the response that the one coming on the clouds is worthy of and deserving of all honor, all glory, all submission, all allegiance. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. It's very interesting that when you go to Revelation 22, Jesus Christ uses the exact same words. Again, that Trinitarian expression of God at work. Alpha and Omega, Alpha meaning this, uncreated, there from the beginning. That is the nature of the person of Christ. It is the nature of God the Father. It is the nature of God the Spirit. They have been there and are present there and are unaffected by the personal struggles that Tim Hoff is facing. He is there and capable. He is there and divine. He controls all things at all times, including the future of your life and mine. To the church, this would say Christ knows you and knows the pain and conflict that you are experiencing. He wants them to know that Caesar rules a region and could threaten persecution. But God rules the world and is God Almighty. Okay, you start to see the contrast. Let's move to some application then. The one thought I just want to remind you of is that there is a blessing promise to those who read this book and, 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 and act in light of it. That's the idea of doing what it says. Now, there's going to be some very specific commands to the church in chapters 2 and 3. Very specific commands about how we should be responding. There is also in chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches forecast of intensification of struggle. They're being warned of both. There is a moral obligation that comes out of it. There's a warning about the difficulties that are coming their way and the need to press into Christ to find the strength that's needed for the season that is before them. But I want to close by putting an emphasis on this thought. The second coming of Christ throughout Scripture is referred to as a day of judgment. It is a day when God does what is right. It is a day when justice comes, when the one who is faithful and true is manifested in all his glory. One writer noted that you can't be healthy without a robust understanding of the Christian doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And the question becomes, why would he make that statement? Why is the second coming of Christ given a full book like this in the Bible? Why is it the last book of the Bible? What is the intent and purpose of that? I want to encourage you to think in this way. Apart from Christ, I am not very aware of my own faults. But I tend to be very aware of the faults of those around me. Does that, anybody else have that affliction? Not very aware of my own faults, very aware of the faults of those around me. My, if my wife is here, she'd probably say, that's true. <laughs> that's you, <laughs> okay? That's what, that's what I get. Well, right, that's a natural tendency. What does the coming of Christ do? It reverses that paradigm, doesn't it? If Christ is coming 
then the doctrine of his coming, the truth of his coming should change how I live every day because I must always be seeking to please him and to honor him because I live in light of his coming. That makes me less focused on others and more conscious about my personal responsibility to love and glorify Christ. And here's the other thing it'll do. If you know that Christ is coming, and when he comes, he makes all things new. When he comes, he is faithful and true. And the implication of that is this. He brings justice. He cannot be bought as a king, as a judge. He cannot be bribed. He cannot render a false verdict. He does never misunderstand. He has eyes of flaming fire. He sees through everything. He knows the truth about why I'm standing here right now preaching this sermon. He knows us. And when I know that, that changes how I live. It also changes how I relate to the people around me. I become less judgmental. I become less critical. Because I realize God's got that. Look, we live in a world, and I, I know the personal story for many of you sitting here. I know the injustices that you have faced. The struggles that you have faced, the difficulties, the rejections, the pain, the abuse. And so does God. The truth that one day he's coming will free you from the bondage of bitterness. That you think you got to make him pay. The doctrine of Christ's return says... Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Take no offense. Don't hold a grudge. Because when you do that, you're trying to isolate someone and make them pay for what they've done to you. It's why we do it. We try to be God instead of trust God. And folks, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Anything I've ever experienced is a Sunday school class compared to what the early church is facing. John wants them to know he's coming on clouds. And on his thigh will be written, faithful and true. There is no politician that meets that qualification. Okay, so if you think there is, can I just, I'll enlighten you. You're wrong. There's only one who has written on his thigh, emblazoned when he comes on his white horse in Revelation 19, in that picture. Only one. He has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He can discern what is right and what is wrong, and he can bring proper judgment so that you will say, I can rest. Folks, I'm going to tell you, let the doctrine of Christ is coming fill you with a a, a, a reminder that he loves you and he purchased you and he saved you. But let it also dictate how you respond to broken people around you who wound and injure. Because you can say, you know what? That's in God's hands. And his hands are capable. His hands know all things. And the judge of all the earth, as the writer says, will do right. And what I can then do, in the midst of my suffering... And in spite of my suffering, I can rest in him. This letter is not to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> okay? It's so that you would read it and come away saying, and I, I'm just going to reflect on one passage, okay? 
Revelation 14. It's the account about the 144,000. And you're all thinking, well, who are they? Blah, blah, blah. They are believers. They're people of God. You say, Tim, how do you know? They're representatives of us. How do you know? Because written on their forehead is a name that identifies who they belong to. And if you read that text and you're trying to figure out who are they, it tells you who they are. They are people that trust in the blood of Christ and who are identified as his. That should thrill you. That in the midst of the real struggles that we all face, because we all go through brokenness, we break and are broken. It's true for all of us. God knows. I don't have to play God. I don't have to figure it all out. I need to act like he wants me to act in light of his coming. He wants me to be gracious and full of favor and love. He wants me to share the good news that is present in the person of Christ until the day that he comes. I wonder this morning, are you ready for his coming? And when he comes, will your eyes be full of fear and dread? Will you weep and mourn? Or will you welcome him with wide open arms, my Lord and my God? That depends on how you've responded to the cross work of Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you say, Tim, I've been coming to this church for a long time, but I've never moved into, by grace through faith, that, that into that personal relationship with God. I would beg of you where you sit right now to say, God, give me the gift of repentance Allow me to see my sin and all of my brokenness. Let me see it. And give me the capacity to rely on what Jesus Christ did for me on Calvary's cross. And make me yours so that the day of your coming is a day of joy. And if you're here and you know Christ, I would ask you, please, orient your life around this promise. It will free you from criticism and it will make you a more careful follower of Jesus till the day that he comes. Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. Lord, we long for your presence. And we trust your timing. I pray, God, that your blessing would rest on this church for the glory of Christ. I pray, God, if there is someone here this morning who has never come to know Jesus, I pray, God, you would give them this morning the gift of repentance to say, God, I am a broken sinner and I desperately need a glorious Savior. Lord, would you draw that one, that two to yourself this morning and encourage them at the end of the service to come up and say, today I trusted Christ and I am now longing for his glorious return. We thank you for your word, Lord. We pray your blessing that you promise as your people, hopefully this week, will read through this book and say, God, don't let me get caught up in details. Let me see the big picture of the coming of our glorious Christ that will comfort me in my struggles and that will make me easier to live with. For the glory of Christ, I pray these things in his name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. Once was lost, 
once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life that led me to the grave I had no Lord, we give you praise this morning. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. We know that's true for the early church too, Lord. Thank you for stories of the saints of old who endured so much to spread the news. 
that even in their sacrifice, Lord, the news is spread. These people would go to death like that for what? For the truth, for Jesus and him and his saving grace. We thank you that we live in light of that, Lord, thousands of years later. What mercy that is. And in this country too. God, may we not take that for granted. Use our ransom lives in any way you choose, Lord. And ultimately what we know that means is for your glory and for your honor, for the spreading of your gospel. May that be true of us this week, God, as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.